Hi, welcome back to The Horrors. Hi, I'm Elise. I'm Shay. And here we are with an episode that we have been waiting, I think, a little while to cover. I think you've been working yourself (laughs) up to this episode for a long, long time. Yes, yes. It had been about six years since I have seen The Conjuring 2013. And the first time was a train wreck, (laughs) to say the least. But I wanted to watch it again, try to redeem myself, maybe cry a little less. And I did it. I was about to say, so it's not a train wreck. Was it a car crash? Was it just hitting your ankle with a razor scooter? (laughs) What kind of accident was it? (laughs) I think it was like stubbing my toe. Oh my God. Yeah, I really think it was stubbing my toe. Still annoying, very painful, but nothing long lasting. I think we've learned a lot about ourselves through this Haunted House series. And the most (laughs) important thing is neither of us really like Haunted House stories. (laughs) They're so scary to me because of the jump scares and the way that, of course, the music scores always get super loud when these jump scares happen. (laughs) My nerves are always on edge, but they are a little boring at times. I was so bored. (laughs) And I know I kind of sound like a spoiled Gen Z horror fan, which (laughs) we're not Gen Z, but like, of like, oh, I only like the elevated horror. It reminds me of the beginning of Scream 5 where it's like, I don't watch that slasher shit. I remember this being scary of its time, but I think now I was saying to Elise last night after we watched it, because St. Maud exists, Mm. my ceiling for religious horror is just so much higher. And this just seems preachy or cheap in comparison. I don't know. I agree. There are some sources that argue that the Conjuring franchise, specifically the Ed and Lorraine Warren directly adjacent pieces, can be considered Christian propaganda. There's kind of like a simplification of a storyline that's happening here. Usually it feels like we get complex stories in relation to religion. Maybe we're not sure good versus evil. Maybe we're not sure if a problem can ever be solved. But this is very much like black and white, good versus evil. If you pray and have an exorcism, you'll be fine. But yeah, there is one really realistic part (laughs) that we'll get to. But otherwise, it felt just a little bit unbelievable to me. So speaking of this plot, let's get into it. First, this is, of course, based on the true story of the Perrin family in Rhode Island. Eight generations of families lived and died in the house before the Perrins moved in. Andrea Perrin, who is the oldest daughter, suggested that some of the spirits from the families never left. Deaths included two documented suicides, a poisoning, the rape and murder of an 11-year-old girl, two drownings, and four men who froze to death. Most deaths occurred within the Arnold family, from which Bathsheba Sherman was descended. And that is a name that will end up coming up a couple times. I don't know. When you guys see you, look like you're going to (laughs) laugh. I know that old names have a lot of mystique to them and they're very beautiful, but I don't know how you name anybody Bathsheba and expect (laughs) anything good to come of it. I'm, I'm kind of wondering if something is up with the name Bathsheba, because I feel like that's a name that I hear a lot in negative contexts, like really often associated with maybe witches, or I don't know why I feel that way. No, I recognize it. And I I don't know from where, but like in the same way that we're used to hearing, I don't know, like Payman is an actual demon, right? Or like Basil Bub, like whatever that TikTok sound is with all the demons in it, like they come up in horror movies, even if it's not of one linear structure where I feel like I've read the name Bathsheba and I'm supposed to get the ick from it, you know? Yes. So anyway, she was apparently a witch, and I'll talk a little bit more about her later. The film itself contains no sex or nudity. 
a little profanity, but it's tame and mostly bloodless violence and brief descriptions of alcohol and no smoking, yet it received an R rating. And this was solely for its scare factor alone. So jump scares galore. And I love shit like this. When the movie was shown in the Philippines, some cinemas had to hire Catholic priests to bless the viewers before showing it. This was due to some viewers having reported a negative presence after watching the film. The priests also provided spiritual and psychological help to the viewers. I love when the movie theaters have to do the most to show movies. It's like raw with the barf bags. Yes! Also, it's reminding me of The Exorcist, the idea that a film can bring with it a lingering negative presence or almost curse its viewers. I think that that's really interesting. Yeah, I feel like this movie really, I don't know if I would say it ushered it in because there's definitely other exorcism movies that came before this. But in terms of the impact, I'm pretty sure if we're talking like religious horror, this probably got the type of attention religiously that The Exorcist caused when that first came out. I don't even know how The Exorcist ends. Like, was it a successful exorcism? The way it ends is essentially the priest who's performing the exorcism gets the demon out of the girl and gets the demon to invoke him instead. But then he throws himself out a window so that it dies with him. Oh, wow. Okay. So it sounds similar to The Conjuring. It like acknowledges the exorcism and Christianity and the power of Christ. Compels you. <laughs> Yeah, and I think the Conjuring sequels further into the universe do take on like elements of that where I'm pretty sure one of the Warrens ends up getting possessed at some point. Oh, okay. And how, you know, the Annabelle doll, which is set up in this movie, that whole universe is kind of spawned in this movie in a way that both kind of annoyed me, but was smart in, in settling the lore that this demon is possessing this vessel of a little girl, you know, that's yes. very present. Absolutely. Well, speaking of Annabelle, we start with our opening scene. We are in an interview with the Warrens. We have Ed and Lorraine Warren. Lorraine Warren is played by Vera Farmiga, and Ed Warren is played by Patrick Wilson. Which we remember. Yes. From Insidious being Josh the Insufferable. <laughs> I will say he's a little better in this movie. There are two nurses. They're sitting in this interview with the Warrens and they have a doll with them that's sitting kind of in her own chair, Annabelle. And they're explaining to the Warrens the supernatural experiences that have been happening with this doll. So apparently this doll was in the apartment. There was a little girl present with them. She asked if she could inhabit the doll so she could be with the girls. And the girl said, yes. They're like, we're nurses. We help people. Which, girl... <laughs> Where are your boundaries? Your obligation is to the living. Yeah, it's such a good point. But then, of course, it is not the spirit of a little girl, but rather a demon. And so even though the girls try to dispose of Annabelle, Annabelle pops right back in the apartment. And so they seek out the Warrens for assistance. The Warrens let them know, hey, wasn't the spirit of a little girl. It was a non-human demon. We'll just take the doll from you and you can be on your way. Yes, they say demonic spirits don't possess things, they possess people. So they went on to explain her intent was never to possess the doll. She was coming after you. So this is why we're going to take her away from you. So cut to a lecture hall. The Warrens are wrapping up a lecture. You know, they sign off. We're the Warrens. We're dermatologists. <laughs> <laughs> Every time I hear demonologist or see it written down, I think it says dermatologist. <laughs> so it's funny when you replace demonologist with dermatologist. Like if you're looking for a little tool to get you through scary movies, <laughs> just don't forget dermatologist. 
And then next thing we know, we cut to 1971. It seems to be a couple years after the initial lecture we see from the Warrens, and we are in Rhode Island. Yes, we are getting a family arriving at their new house. It is a pack of seven. Yes. And we are not going to remember all their names because there are so many (laughs) fucking daughters in this movie. We will try to keep it straight for you. First, we have, of course, the dad, Roger, and then we have mom, Carolyn, played by Lily Taylor, oldest daughter, Andrea, played by Shanley Caswell, Nancy, played by Haley McFarland, Christine, played by Joey King, Mackenzie Foy as Cindy, and then Kyla Deaver as Little April. Yes, so we get a move-in montage. We see that the youngest April has a creepy toy, which has come to be an expectation at this point in some of these haunting movies. (laughs) You know, Chloe Grace Moretz in Amityville, where she's got her teddy and her Etch-A-Sketch. Dalton's got his weird drawings. And April has a music box. You know, she's playing with this music box. Obviously, there's some creepy music that we're going to hear a million times throughout the movie. The girls decide they want to play their version of Hide and Seek, which is called Hide and Clap. The point of the game is that, you know, one person walks around with a blindfold on while everybody else hides seemingly in plain sight. And the seeker has to ask for a certain number of claps and that noise will help them seek everybody there. So, of course, this is going to be put to scary effect. So while they're playing this, one of the girls gets pushed into the cellar and her body weight disrupts a board. And when the dad goes to look at it, he realizes that a portion of the cellar had been boarded up. And he starts taking them down and looking around with matches, only to find a bunch of creepy things left behind by the previous owners. Very creepy. I wrote that this dad is way too brave. He is in this basement with one match. How can he even see anything? It's also nighttime outside, so we can't even rely on any light coming in from the sun. They decide that they'll have to revisit this room in the morning and take a look at what's down there. That night, mom and dad christen the house, which also seems like it's a staple of a lot of haunted house movies. Then the next morning, we start getting our first of the supernatural events. Mom makes up with bruises. The girls complain they are cold. Nancy says that she smelled something funky. And mom notices that not one, but two clocks stopped at exactly 3.07 a.m. We forgot to mention Sadie the dog. Sadie the dog was suspicious of the house from the onset. She would not go inside the house. She was, you know, barking up a storm late at night. So they had left her outside on a chain. And after the parents were exploring the basement and finding it full of all of these artifacts, they think they can make some money off of it. Little April goes outside and discovers that Sadie has died or has been killed. But we don't really see how we never hear about it again. (laughs) That's it. Visit with haunted house movies and killing their dogs. I don't know. It's so unsettling. So cut back to the Warrens. They're at their house. And Ed is giving a reporter of some kind a tour of his room full of haunted house artifacts, including Annabelle. As he's talking to this reporter, we find out that Lorraine was once deeply, deeply traumatized on the job, perhaps possessed in some way, or she saw something so terrifying But we're getting the sense that Ed feels guilty and that they're still kind of recovering from however this exorcism went wrong. Back at the Perrin house, it is nighttime again. Christine gets her leg pulled and I said, farted on. (laughs) But really, uh, she thinks it's her sister pulling her leg out of the bed and farting because she shares a room with, I believe, Nancy. 
Meanwhile, dad is downstairs, I guess walking around the house, he sees the kitchen door, like I guess a door into the kitchen itself, like not the outside door, randomly open. So he's confused and then we hear a light thudding upstairs and it turns out that it's Cindy sleepwalking. Apparently she has a history of this, but she's found lightly banging her head on a wardrobe in her sister Andrea's room. So dad comes in, takes Cindy back to bed. I also want to rank the creepiness of women banging their heads against things. Because you have Tony Collette in Hereditary. Ooh. You have Amelia and Babadook. You have Cindy <laughs> with the wardrobe. It seems to be a theme for creepy things. Next morning, Carolyn wakes up with more bruising. She sends the kids off to school and her husband off to work. So it is just her and little April home. April is in her room and Carolyn walks in to hear her talking to Rory. We got another imaginary friend. And she says she's talking to him through the music box. Mom looks and is like, oh, can I meet Rory? And of course, we get like a fake out jump scare where we think something's going to happen. Because when you open the music box, there's a mirror that spins behind you and obviously sets up a shot for something to pop up, but nothing does. So April asks to play hide and clap where the mom is seeking. So mom is seeking and she hears a clap. So she goes to the wardrobe, the same wardrobe that Cindy had been banging her head against in the night. So she opens the door Here's a third clap, but then realizing that I'm hearing a clap, but she's genuinely not here. So she takes her blindfold off and April jumps out behind her and she's like, well, mom, you weren't even close. I was in the other room. (laughs) So it's like, where was these claps coming from? Mm -hmm. Didn't we even see a pair of hands pop out and clap from the wardrobe? I don't know if it's now or later. I'm not sure. I'm just imagining things. (laughs) I'm imagining them. But it's, yeah, very unsettling. Later that night, Christine wakes up again to leg pulling, but this time it's much more aggressive than the previous night. And she is freaked out because it is not her sister. Her sister is sound asleep in the bed next to her. She starts seeing something behind the door and she asks Nancy, she wakes her up and asks if she can see. Nancy says she doesn't. Nancy is such a good sister. She gets up, stands in the dark space by the door and is like, see, no one's here. It's okay. But then all of a sudden from the inside, the door slams shut and Christine starts screaming and freaking out. So then of course, dad has to run up, get in the room. Nancy seems like she still never saw anything. I mean, she experienced the door slam shut right next to her, but she still seems kind of confused. But Christine is insisting she saw someone standing behind the door and they spoke to her saying that they want the family dead. So meanwhile, we're still seeing some bits and pieces about Ed and Lorraine. We're sewing these stories so that eventually these two families are going to merge and figure out something that's going on within the parents' haunted house. This scene, I think, serves only to try to give credibility to the Warrens. They go and do some paranormal investigation, but we see Ed Warren saying, see, with the pipes and the changing weather, it's causing creaking. Most of the time, you're not dealing with paranormal activity at all. So again, trying, I think, to make it seem like these are not scam artists. Most of the time, they respond to seemingly paranormal activity that is not actually paranormal. So then we are back to the parents. Carolyn is getting ready for bed and hears clapping. But of course she reacts like, oh, these girls, they're up. They're playing hide and clap. It is way past their bedtime. So she moves through the house to see who's awake, but everyone is sleeping and dad is not home. After she realizes all the girls are asleep, we hear this big boom and all the pictures that have been hung up ever so nicely up the staircase fall and shatter all at the same time. 
Carolyn is like, what the fuck? Very scary moment. And then she hears clapping coming from downstairs. So she slowly walks into the basement because the clapping is slowly descending, descending, descending. And I don't know. This scene got you. This scene really got me. I don't think she goes in all the way to the basement. She stands at the top landing and gets freaked out. And when she goes to leave, the door slams in her face, locking her in the basement. Sends her tumbling down the stairs. Yes. Okay, so that's how she gets all the way down the stairs. I screamed. (laughs) I screamed because this is so scary. Like you think that she's just going to be able to scoot right back out of the basement. But of course she can't. She's freaking out. Upstairs, Andrea is dealing with a sleepwalking Cindy again. As she walks Cindy back to bed, she hears tapping behind her and the wardrobe door starts shutting lightly with the same pattern as Cindy's tapping head. (gasps) and then andrea's view slowly pans up from the center of the wardrobe up to the top and we see bathsheba crouched on top of the wardrobe and she descends upon andrea so now mom is in the basement screaming andrea's upstairs screaming because she's being attacked by bathsheba Dad conveniently pulls up in the driveway now and hears all of the women in his life screaming. So he runs upstairs and somehow the situation is resolved. He gets Carolyn out of the basement. He calms the girls down. But this is by far the scariest night we've had so far in the parents' house. I would say this is the highlight of the jump scares because while Carolyn is still in the basement, she does make it to the top of the stairs again. (gasps) Oh, I warned you this was coming, so maybe you didn't remember this. Yes, you did warn me. But she lights a match to kind of look in the basement to see, like, what's down there, what's down there. And a pair of hands come out from the darkness behind her right next to her ear and clap twice, which is a pretty good jump scare. And this is, like, intercut with the Bathsheba shit. So in terms of Bathsheba jumping down from the wardrobe and the hands coming out of nowhere, yeah, Roger's dealing with a fucking lot. These entities, they love to play games, (laughs) like the clapping, the banging of the door, you know, as Cindy is taken to bed. Like, it feels so malicious, like rude sleepover game shit when you're in the seventh grade and your friends are trying to freak you out. It's like, bitch, just stop. (laughs) It's like when your friend is like moving the planchette when you're doing like the Ouija board and you're like, stop, (laughs) it's not me. (laughs) Which, don't play with fucking Ouija boards. It's not fun. Don't do that. No, no. Don't do that. One day we should do... Isn't there a horror movie about Ouija boards? I think there's a franchise. There's a movie, Ouija Origin of Evil, that Mike Flanagan does that Lynn Shea is in from Insidious. Okay. Okay. She's in that. So that could be interesting. And I think that there's obviously like other weird off-brand Ouija board movies, of course. But if you know a good one, let us know. Yeah, let us know. So next, the Warrens are on another college tour. They be booked and busy with Mm -hmm. all of these universities. (laughs) And they show a video of an exorcism and, you know, are taking a QA. and a We have a little cameo from Lorraine Warren, the actual Lorraine Warren, because she was alive at the time of this filming and served as a consultant on the film. But also in the crowd is Carolyn. Carolyn had sought them out and is watching as they give a presentation on the three stages of possession, infestation, oppression, and possession. So after the talk, Carolyn goes to the Warrens and asks them for help. Ed seems a little like, eh, we're booked, sorry, but Lorraine can tell from looking at Carolyn and hearing her talk about her daughters. 
she decides that they will go and check their house out. Right away, as the Warrens arrive at the house, Lorraine seems to sense some bad energy. They get a tour, and in the cellar is where Lorraine is especially overcome by the sense that something bad has happened here. So Lorraine is in the living room, and she sits down to interview some of the girls, and Ed is in the kitchen with Roger and Carolyn and interviews them. Little April gives Lorraine the music box that she has. So as Lorraine looks through the music box, she sees a little ghost boy standing behind her. So there's our first Rory sighting, which is very spooky. Outside, as Ed and Lorraine touch base about what they have experienced inside, Lorraine is looking at Ed and just past his head, she can see the feet of a hanging woman dangling from the conjuring tree. And she almost faints, right? Overcome by the energy of the moment, knowing that something bad is going on in this house. And so they report back to the family, essentially that the house needs an exorcism. There's a very specific trope of creepy things being just behind Patrick Wilson's head in movies. Because you have the lipstick face (laughs) demon in Insidious, and now you got the pair of hanging feet. And then of course they leave, which is very scary, I think, for the family. (laughs) I guess they're going to go talk to a priest and see if they can get someone to perform the exorcism. Well, this is where we get our first dose of religious propaganda because they say the house needs an exorcism and they talk about how the family just can't leave because the dark entity has attached itself to the family and not to the house. Yes. So as they leave, they're talking about the exorcism and Roger's like, well, we're not really a church going family. And Ed's like, you may want to rethink that. Yeah, it's so rude. And also the children aren't baptized, which is another point that seems to spell out bad news for the parents. So later, Ed is going over the recording of their conversation in the kitchen and realizes that Carolyn's voice did not pick up on the recording. Meanwhile, Lorraine is doing some research and she finds out that a previous owner of the house killed her son in the basement. And that son is Rory. That's why Lorraine picked up on some bad vibes in the basement. And obviously, we saw evidence of a suicide outside in the tree. Lots of bad vibes going on. And she does also learn about Bathsheba, who she informs us was also somebody who lived in the house, also did some child killing, and was the descendant of one of the witches of the Salem Witch Trial. Always has to tie back. When are these women gonna get a break? (laughs) Women and men, because there were a couple dudes in there. But like, God damn. So yeah, like you said, (laughs) lots of bad vibes. And Bathsheba seems to be the most sinister of them all, especially because of her connections to witchcraft. All of a sudden, the recording that they had just tried to listen to plays again. And in the spaces where Carolyn's voice was previously totally absent, we are getting static and moaning. And the Warrens look over to their clock and their clock has stopped right at 3.07 a.m. So then we are introduced to the Specs and Tucker of this franchise, or at least this movie. We have Officer Brad, which I don't know what expertise he's bringing besides just being a police officer. I don't know why he's there. Well, no one here is trained in anything. No. Officer Brad is trained in other things aside from ghosting. And Ed Warren, you know, he has no experience in like demonology. He's all like self-taught. So like these people are just out here. (laughs) Yeah, but we have Officer Brad and then Drew. And I don't know who Drew is. Is he like a college student? He does seem like a very much college student, but he doesn't really get a lot of exposition. He's like tech boy. He's supposed to be super cute tech boy who low-key flirts with Andrea at one point, but that's about it. 
Yeah, Drew is Zane from Degrassi from any Degrassi fans out there. So <laughs> super cute indeed. But they are Specs and Tucker. They're setting up the photo taking technology similar to Insidious in the sense where there's supposed to be flash photos whenever the vibe of the room changes. So it's supposed to be taking photos of spirits as they walk through the house. And we get a cute moment between Carolyn and Lorraine where they're looking at a family photo of them on the beach and how it was such a happy time. And it was the last time they were all together and super happy. And it really touches Lorraine. And I guess because she's clairvoyant, she's able to see the memory through her mind just by touching the photo. So everything is set. The microphones, the cameras, all of the exposition. And Ed goes around the house setting up little crosses to try to stir shit up. He says that sometimes religious iconography can upset the entity. Just then they hear one of the little doorbells because they hang little bells over the doorknobs. They go to the cellar door and down into the cellar. Lorraine goes along with and she starts feeling sick They keep looking around, but it doesn't seem like anything is going to happen, except once they get back upstairs, the basement door slams behind them. And then the next morning, things are all happy. The paranormal team and the Warrens and the family are all making breakfast. They're all very happy. At one point, Officer Brad the night before notices that the clock has made it to 3.08, I guess telling us that they were in the clear and there was no bad activity. Yes, so Ed and Lorraine tell Carolyn, who seems to be exhausted still, obviously, they've been going through something very traumatic. You go take a nap, we'll take care of the kids and all of these things. So they're outside hanging sheets on the line, giving Halloween. Lorraine is left alone doing these things. And then like clouds start rolling in, it starts getting very ominous, no light, very spooky. The wind picks up, one of the sheets blows off the line. And as it gets blown into the wind, it catches the shape of a person standing there. It's very scary. It's a good scare. And then that goes away. The sheet goes further up into a window of the house. And then when the sheet blows away from the window, you see a figure standing in the window. And I think that room is supposed to be Carolyn's room. Yes. So Lorraine immediately runs up the stairs, tries to get into Carolyn's room. She can't. So she goes back around to try to enter the bathroom through the hallway entrance. And just then Carolyn appears at the door. Lorraine asks her if she's okay. And Carolyn seems fine. She seems, you know, still a little bit exhausted, but as if nothing happened. However, we know a little something, something. We do. Because as Lorraine is trying to get upstairs, we see Bathsheba over Carolyn's sleeping vulnerable body project some kind of like vomit looking entity into Carolyn's body in a really gross, gross scene. So Lorraine, although she hears that Carolyn is fine, we know that she is not. And something has happened. She is possessed somehow or is close to being possessed. That's always just like a horrible visual is like the puke in mouth or like even the scene in the Babadook where the Babadook like spins into Amelia's mouth. Like it's there's something of like that level of possession. Mm-hmm. It isn't always like the Archie back things that we see in St. Maud. It's visceral. I liked it because it was the most unsettling part of the movie, I think. I think so too. Bathsheba is not on our ladies list because she's actually played by a man who scored music for Insidious, which is interesting because Insidious does the same thing where they use a man to play the very scary witchy woman in black. And here we're seeing in The Conjuring, a man is used to play the very scary witchy woman. 
It just feels weird to me because the Insidious sequels get a little transphobic. It's interesting to me that they're using men to play women because the idea is that these women are supposed to be scary or they're supposed to not be conventionally attractive, which when you do that to serve that purpose, it's pretty transphobic to trans women. It makes me feel a little weird. Obviously, the the costuming of Bathsheba is scary Mm -hmm. and It pulls off to an interesting effect. And that's not to say that, you know, you can't play with gender in movies in that way, but the intended effect is meant to be of horror. And we talked about this in our Sleepaway Camp episode about how these people can sometimes use transness or playing with gender presentation to evoke horror, but how does that bleed into our perception of non-binary or trans folks outside of horror? So... Don't love it. I mean, again, the costuming of Bathsheba is effective and same with The Bride in Black, but like just weird. And they're both James Wan movies. So it's like, okay, what things are you sewing or what ideas do you have? I don't know. I don't know. But yeah, that's a really interesting connection. I didn't realize that sometimes that happens. So outside, after we have the interaction with Lorraine and Carolyn, we see that Ed and Roger are bonding a little bit, and we hear some more about Lorraine's exorcism experience. This is where we learn that she did see something, I guess, in the eyes of the person that was on the receiving end of the exorcism. She was screaming. She was weak. Apparently, afterwards, she shut herself in her bedroom, didn't eat or come out for eight days. And so, again, this is creating the sense that Lorraine is very fragile because of her clairvoyant powers, and Ed is very much set on protecting her. That night, we have Brad and Drew monitoring the house as everybody sleeps. Brad goes to the kitchen to get more coffee and sees a ghost woman in the back patio area, I guess. You know, it's one of those scenes where everywhere he turns around, like, she gets closer to him in different corners of the room. And we see that this is one of the folks that committed suicide on the grounds. She has slashes in her wrists and says, look what she made me do. So we can assume that maybe this is another woman who inhabited the house and did bad things under Bathsheba's influence. While this is happening, you see flash photography going off in the hallway. And when everyone rushes to see what it is, it's Cindy sleepwalking. So Roger's like, why is it taking pictures of Cindy? It's just her. She's causing the motion sensors. And Ed's like, no, somebody's with her. Mm -hmm. So they let Cindy walk up the stairs and she ends up in her bedroom and the door slams behind her. So Cindy's locked in the room Everyone else is trying to get into the room. There's a voice that says, follow me this way. This is where I hide. So they all break in there. The room is cold as fuck. Everyone has clouds of breath coming out of them. And Cindy is not there. She's not in the space and she's not in the wardrobe. They end up getting a UV light where Ed is able to go all over the wardrobe and sees that there's handprints on a panel at the very back of the wardrobe. So they turn on the lights They take the panel away from the back of the wardrobe to reveal a hole in the wall. Mm -hmm. And Cindy is asleep behind the wardrobe inside the wall. And April is now in the room and says, that's where Rory hides when he's afraid. Ed, of course, crawls in, gets Cindy out. And then Lorraine wastes no time going in herself and looking around. And she sees like a clear shape in the dust that shows that's where the music box had come from. So again, very similar to Amityville Horror. 
we see a child within the movie that's just toting around a toy that belonged to a dead kid. But not too long after Lorraine gets in there and looks around, the floor gives out from underneath her and she falls like through that crevice area between walls all the way down through to the basement. We knew immediately it was the basement, but nobody else in this movie figured out that it was the basement. Which, like, is really weird to me because I feel like it would be very obvious that it was the basement. <laughs> like, they're all, like, tapping the living room walls, like, not even close to where she fell, being like, Lorraine! And it's like, <laughs> just follow the line. There's only one place to go and, and it's down. Yeah, that kind of architectural feature in houses is very common. I mean, that's a huge gap in there. I think usually that dead space is much smaller. Like, I don't think you could usually fit a full adult in there. This was giving baby Groots in the wall in the hallow. (laughs) Like there was a system of places you can crawl inside the walls. Like there's a whole community Mm -hmm. of space behind these walls. Apparently I'm like, where is this this much room? Why is there so much dead air? (laughs) Whatever. So she falls down. She has the music box with her and she hears a woman weeping somewhere behind her saying she made me do it. Mm. So again, we're getting the idea that Bathsheba compels these women to do bad things. She looks and sees the feet again, the feet of somebody hanging from a noose and it swings at her. Oh, like very slowly though. Wait, at first slowly, right? Maybe I wasn't looking because, you know what? I wasn't because the feet did start slowly turning towards Lorraine. And I was like, you know what? I'm okay if I don't see what happens next. It made me laugh. It's not funny because obviously the imagery for me, it reminded me of the swinging door scene in Monsters, Inc., where like the doors are just like on this little conveyor belt and you know Sully and Mike are just jumping from door to door and like to me it looked like a door from Monsters Inc that it was just like following its track toward her and I'm like this isn't scary like this is I don't know whatever mm-hmm. okay. it doesn't matter because I'm like who's moving the noose yes it doesn't matter I'm grossly desensitized at this point <laughs> I guess I don't know they finally realize she's in the basement Lorraine is running up the stairs and this is where we get plot point dialogue very similar to Orphan First Kill where it's like, she's a grown woman. It's, (laughs) she possessed the mothers to kill her daughters. Like, it's just like, okay, that's the point of the movie. All right, awesome. You've spelled it out for us. Thank you very much. And then Nancy starts getting pulled by the hair and thrown all over the living room. I guess because, you know, Lorraine Scooby-Dooed the situation and realized what's going on with these possessions and this string of like murders and suicides throughout the history of this house. Carolyn, who we had seen previously become possessed in some way, also starts getting pissed. It seems like she decides she's going to stop pretending that she's just Carolyn. And so she starts becoming very aggressive and showing that she herself is also possessed. Okay, dumb scene time. So the next morning, they're all leaving, even though we've established that them leaving the house isn't going to do anything. Mm -hmm. Because the entity has attached itself to them. Carolyn is still acting weird. Lorraine goes to take a little moment by the water and sees their daughter, Judy, floating underneath the surface of the lake. (laughs) It's what? so dumb. It's dumb. And she's wearing this necklace that in a previous scene, Judy, because she missed her parents so much because they're always out working, had given her mother a matching locket so that Judy can have a locket with the pictures of her parents and her mother can have a locket with the picture of Judy. And when she was getting out of the basement, we saw that the locket had fallen in the basement. Oh, okay. I didn't see that. So maybe the idea that Bathsheba is projecting these images onto her. Now that makes at least a little bit more sense. I missed that. Mm -hmm. So then she gets freaked out. She goes inside. She calls her mother, who is babysitting Judy while the parents are away. 
She gets it confirmed that Judy is fine. She's okay. She hangs up the phone and then just tells Ed, I had a vision of Judy in the water. I was scared that something was wrong. And here's our most realistic scene. So the Warrens are going to try to find a priest to perform this exorcism. And the priest is obviously very taken by the footage that the Warrens are able to show him proving these supernatural events. But the priest is like, well, the kids aren't baptized. So I don't know. (laughs) So we don't give a shit. So we don't give a shit. But then I say sarcastically out of the goodness of his heart, he says he can make an exemption. So he's going to try to get approval from the Pope. He's just going to casually hope that the Pope sees this anytime within the next like six months to a year. I'm sure with all of the mail that he gets to see if they can grant permission for an exorcism. So then we get a scene of Judy, who, again, is Ed and Lorraine's daughter, and also a very real person. So I'm wondering, you know, if she co-signed her portrayal in this. Yeah. Her necklace is hanging, I guess, like on a lamp next to her bedside, and it starts swinging in a circle, almost as if you were using like a pendant as like a Ouija board, almost, which is really creepy. It wakes her up. She's calling for her mom and dad. She's walking throughout the house. She turns and sees somebody holding the Annabelle doll and rocking in a rocking chair. And we had seen in a previous scene that Judy was curious about the Annabelle doll. She had broken into the museum room of their house that otherwise she's not allowed in. So the Annabelle doll kind of has an effect on her. So she sees this. It scares her. She looks back again and it's empty, but the chair is spinning. Oh my God. Ed and Lorraine get home. You know, she's screaming for them. She's screaming for her grandmom. They're trapped on the side of a door that won't open, which I'm tired of at this point. Yeah, it happened. How many times? Like, take seven the hinges times? off your doors, <laughs> get no more beads. Doors. It's Freaky Friday. Yes. <laughs> get beads. Get beads. <laughs> get hanging beads. <laughs> It is 1997, everyone. Let's go. (laughs) Well, what year is this? 1971? Oh, yeah. Maybe like beads in the 90s were a resurgence. When did they start? I associate them with like hippie culture. So the 70s? I don't know. Maybe it did start. 70s, 60s? Where are the beads? Give me the beads. Give me the beads. So the chair launches itself at them. Of course, Ed is able to open the door and shield the daughter from the chair splintering against the door. So, okay. This spirit has attached itself to Lorraine. I have no idea. Or is this the Annabelle doll doing this? I don't think it's Annabelle. I think it looks like Bathsheba is the one holding the Annabelle doll. So perhaps because we hear that Annabelle is a conduit and Bathsheba had a picture of Judy that she was able to go somehow to that house and use the doll to terrorize Judy. (laughs) I don't know. Is this something, do you know if it's ever addressed in the later movies as far as Annabelle's powers or what could happen? That is a blind spot for me. The Annabelle movies are a blind spot for me because I remember writing down like so much of this is just spending time setting up Annabelle and I'm annoyed because I don't (laughs) care about Annabelle at this point. Yes. Yes. I feel like Annabelle is a very specific kind of horror, like the doll horror. It doesn't speak to me. Like, in the same way the Chucky franchise doesn't speak to me. Like, I think it's an original idea, and then you made 10 of them. You could say that about many other movies. Oh, yes. And franchises that we love that we've covered. It's just the doll possession just doesn't do it for me. I don't know. Meanwhile, as the Warrens calm things down at home... We see that Carolyn has taken off with Christine and April and is headed back to the house. So she has kidnapped them from, I guess, maybe the motel that they were staying at. 
I'm wondering, like, the significance. I get April because she's, like, the closest to the haunting in terms of Rory and everything. And we know Christine was getting her leg pulled, but Cindy was, like, banging her head in a wardrobe and, like, got stuffed in the back of it inside the wall. So, like, why not her, too? Maybe because Christine and April were the ones that, like, have actually seen things. Because Christine was the one that saw, like, the figure behind the door. And even though you're right, Cindy was totally sleepwalking, I don't know if she ever consciously experienced anything. That's a good point. So maybe they're the most in tune to what's going on. And so that's why Carolyn takes them. I don't know. But good question, because I would assume like the two youngest and April is one of the youngest. So we get Ed and Lorraine arriving to the house with Brad. They hear noises coming from the basement. We get some more possess the mother to kill the child dialogue. It's like, <laughs> we get it. We get it. So we see Carolyn trying to kill Christine with a pair of scissors in the basement. Roger and Ed are able to wrestle Carolyn away. They try to get her out of the house, but as she crosses the threshold of the front door, her skin begins burning. And we realize that Bathsheba is not going to let Carolyn leave the house alive. This is proven when Carolyn is dragged from their grasp and dragged back down the basement by her ankles, which is always an unsettling image. Yes. And I feel horrible for Christine in this scene because she's just putting this car outside and it's just like, stay here. Yeah, because Drew puts her there and then he goes around to try to find April because they cannot find April. She was not in the basement with Christine and mom. They go back downstairs, of course, and try to contain Carolyn in the basement. They are able to throw a sheet over her and tie her with some rope to a chair in the middle of the room. Of course, Father Gordon is too far away. So Ed decides that he will do the exorcism. At this point, we're getting some exorcism staples where Carolyn's voice is all distorted and screaming. It's pretty creepy. Ed is reading a bunch of Latin, which in this case, please read the Latin, unlike the Latin in (laughs) Cabin in the Woods. Sometimes it's okay to read some Latin. Sometimes it's okay to read some Latin. (laughs) Carolyn is screaming. The chair is rattling. Flocks of birds are flying into the cars and into the windows. We had seen this earlier in the movie. We didn't mention it, but... Birds kept breaking their necks against the house like there was a Windex commercial. <laughs> like, that yeah. was just like a symptom of the haunting. Mm-hmm. There's some blood puke. We love that. <sighs> and we get some like stupid fucking like Christian dialogue. Like, we're fighting for her soul. And also a lot of elements of fate here. We've heard two times now from the Warrens that when they got married, they told each other God brought us together for a reason. Ideas of fate, salvation, they're all very much at the height of their play in the movie at this time. To clarify, I'm not saying it's stupid because it's religious. I'm saying it's (laughs) stupid because it's very cornily done. Also, like, I have a little bit of a pet peeve with people choosing really intense moments to say things like this. I don't know. I just feel like in moments like this, the poetry would leave my body. (laughs) (laughs) You're so right. Like, I'm not going to be eloquent right now. Yes. Yes. And so they're being very eloquent. They're like connecting this moment to the existence of their lives together, which just feels a little bit like too much. Not the time. Not the time. I don't even know if mentally you'd have the capacity to even remember that you're married. (laughs) I don't know. Especially when the chair starts floating and flipping upside down and slamming itself against the ceiling of the basement. Yes. And meanwhile, Drew is still looking for April and he finds her in the floor. I don't know how she gets there, but he decides, this also is an issue with me, to use a fire poker to try to like gouge her out. But I'm like, you have to be careful with that. I mean, this floor we saw is old and brittle. What if you hit too hard and hurt her under there? But anyway, he finds her and yells, I found April, 
Well, at this point, Carolyn has already been freed from her splintered chair. She's no longer tied down. And so she grabs the scissors again and goes to seek April. This is supposed to be a scary moment, but it just reminded me of you letting a cat loose in an attic. (laughs) Like she's just scurrying on all fours and then she just ends up under the crawl space of the house. And it's just like, like my cat got loose in my parents' attic the other day. and We were up there for 15 minutes sorting through the insulation being like, get the fuck back here. And that's just what she looks like. Like she's like, and like just scurries under the house. Like she's a rat. Oh my God. But you're right. It is. It's like telling a kid or an animal, okay, stay put. And then the second you let them go, they're like gone. (laughs) Mom gets a hold of April in, again, the hidden like wall crevices of the house. The street system behind the walls in this house. The entire community behind the catacombs. Yes. As above, so below. Yes. We have to do that. Lorraine is at the hole that Drew had gouged out trying to reach for April and Carolyn. Roger is on the other side of this boarded off passage to the area where they are. So we have people that can't quite get to them, but they are nearby. We get some more dialogue, some more righteous dialogue. Ed and Lorraine are trying to encourage Roger to talk her through this. They're like, she has to fight from the inside. So he's talking to her like, you can do this, you can do this, trying to get Carolyn to fight off the demon herself. I do think this is kind of interesting. Lorraine, because in Christianity, women can't be priests, puts her hand very priest-like on Carolyn's head, which seems as if her holiness or power of faith is also able to aid in Carolyn releasing this demon, which I thought was kind of cool that a, a woman got to use her touch to have this kind of effect because priests are always men in this case, and she's a woman. That and like her transference of memory. Like, I didn't know if it was so much holy as it was, oh, okay, she's showing her psychic chops because she's able to imprint the beach memory, which we mentioned earlier, into Carolyn's head. And that is kind of what breaks her from her possession. And she pukes Bathsheba's influence (laughs) back out of her. But I do like that imagery. And I'm glad that you put it that way of how it's very priest-like for her to just put hands on her. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So you're right. She pukes up Bathsheba. Lots of of puking in the latter half of this movie. And of course, her motherhood comes back to her. Then we pretty much cut out of that scene pretty quick. I wrote, day has come and so have the apologies. (laughs) (laughs) Mom has a lot of apologies to make. Because even though we know it wasn't her, those girls are you know, it's probably gonna be hard to look at their mom for a little while. That's the thing about these haunting movies. I want to see the family therapy afterwards, because no one's trusting Patrick Wilson again in Insidious. No one's (laughs) trusting the dad in Amityville Horror again Mm -hmm. after this. Either way, it's like the same with like the kids and their toys. Take the toys away. (laughs) Expel this person from the family. They're done. And also I wrote no medical attention. (laughs) Because Carolyn got absolutely destroyed. And she's standing up, walking around. No way. That's horror movie logic. Remember, that was like a big gripe I had about Scream 2022, where yeah. like fucking Gail and Sydney had all of these intestinal stab wounds <laughs> and they're just checking their texts in the ambulance bay. It's like, Jesus Christ. So then we leave the parents in their early days of mental recovery and the Warrens have taken the music box that had belonged to little Rory and added it to their souvenir collection. Ed, I think, is the one that sets it down on a shelf. Then he gets a call about a case in Long Island. What's in Long Island? Amityville, baby. Ah! 
Yes. And then, of course, the music box plays and closes us out. And that's how the movie ends. Giving us nothing. (laughs) (laughs) This movie, as far as setting up a franchise, I think had a lot of foresight. They did the work to set that up. But I do feel like it takes away a little bit from this story itself. It's distracting. It certainly is. Especially like, I feel like it's very brave being that this is a first installment to open with Annabelle. I realize it wouldn't have been organic any other way, but you're expecting that doll to make an appearance the entire time. And then she never does. And it's like, what the fuck? Yeah. You expect there to be a jump scare or something and it never happens. Because it's like in Insidious, you know, you see the lipstick face demon and you see the long haired fiend and you see the bride in black and all these types of things and you allow it because it's the first movie. And it's like, yeah, there isn't going to be just one demon in the further. It's going to be a collective. But to start a movie with an antagonist, I mean, maybe it was a great misdirect, but I don't know. I forgot that it started that way and it distracted me the entire time. You know, that's a really good point. That is really bold because I feel like it's putting a lot of eggs in one basket. Like you had mentioned with Insidious, there were a lot of demons partially to see how people reacted to them. Mm -hmm. So if the franchise continued, they could know based on the first movie what people were reacting to, maybe what people wanted to see more of. Whereas Annabelle, they made that decision. And if you didn't like Annabelle, I think it would be a lot harder to write your way out of the backstory you had already written for her. I also think it was pretty easy knowing that Annabelle factually was a case that they did and is a true artifact that does exist Mm -hmm. in their house. But you could have cut Judy completely out of this movie and it wouldn't have made a difference. Yeah. Like all the daughter plot lines, I'm like, I don't care. That's another thing too about this movie that feels a little bit like propaganda-y is the emphasis on like family, 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 like nuclear family love and also the love of a mother, which doesn't always have to feel that way, but it felt a little bit forced Again, because that storyline with Judy just felt distracting and like I would have rather focused on what was going on with the parents because, you know, they had five kids. We knew the parents, all that stuff. I want a sky high like sitcom following (laughs) Judy around where it's like, my parents are demonologists. (laughs) They brought home another creepy thing. What the fuck? I'm just trying to date boys for the first time. You know what I mean? Like that would be so funny. (laughs) If I was Judy, I'd be so pissed all the time. I'd be so angry. I'm like, mom, you got to bring home another thing. Yeah. Her room is like right above the museum room. Stop getting visions on my dates or whatever. You know what I mean? Like I, that's what I want. (laughs) Because Judy seems so like, you guys are so brave and you have such strong faith. I'm always connected and I love you very much. And granted, she's like 10 in this movie, so that's Mm -hmm. fine. But I want to see her as like a pissed off teenager being like, stop bringing this shit home with you. I'm Mm -hmm. trying to sleep. Yeah. Okay, so let's get into this. Let's get into a little bit. Well, first, I do want to talk about Bathsheba Sherman. Because I just want to clarify some things about what's going on. Because they took her story and ran with it in a very extreme direction. This bit, before getting into more about the Warrens, is according to Emma Jane Betts in her article, The Sad True Story of the Conjuring Witch Bathsheba. So apparently Bathsheba's character is based on first-hand accounts from the Warrens and Andrea Perrin's recollection of events that befell her family. Later recorded in her House of Darkness, House of Light trilogy. So I guess Andrea wrote a book about this house. Seems to be a theme. Yes. According to the Perrin's novel and the 2013 film, Bathsheba was a witch and devil worshiper. The ghost movie details her backstory, telling the grim history of a woman who cruelly killed an infant before announcing her love for Satan and hanging herself. However, right before she died, she cursed the land that would later become the site of the Perrin's home. But despite the Warrens and Perrin's, in the film's account, 
There is no evidence that Bathsheba Sherman, who was a real woman and not some urban legend, ever engaged in devil worship. There is also no evidence of the woman killing children at all, and as it turns out, even the claim that she was accused of witchcraft is dubious. The real Bathsheba Sherman died in 1885 as an old woman, not by hanging as the movie suggests. She was a member of the First Baptist Church, living a typical life for a New Englander, and there was no general satanic activity ever recorded. I mean, it's giving George Lutz from the Amityville remake, didn't try to kill his family, didn't try to do all these types of things. Yeah. I don't know, is it that she has a creepy name and that (laughs) she's long gone dead that Mm -hmm. like it can't get sued for defamation in the same way that the Amityville case did, you know? True. But like, you know, this is so typical of a woman's reputation, is it not? It is. It is so typical. And I think it's really interesting that usually I feel like you at least pick somebody who has maybe whisperings that surround them. And Bathsheba does have whisperings because apparently one day she was babysitting a neighbor's kid who died and the autopsy revealed like a sharp puncture wound. But nothing I read ever went into detail about what that could have possibly been. But Bathsheba never had charges pressed against her. She was never arrested. It was a tragedy, and that's the only thing that seems to have surrounded her that maybe paved the way for her to be characterized in this way, but that fucking sucks. I mean, it's very similar in the sense of when we talked about Cannibal Power Hour, about how cannibalism comes from accusation, being like, Mm. those people over there did it historically, but it's the same way for witchcraft, where it's, you know, Salem Witch Trials, you're a witch, you did this, you did that. It's all about not self-proclaiming these things, you know? Yeah. Wowee. I got some chills. (laughs) Yep. She is characterized as other people decided to characterize her. And it does suck that she had no say in that. Even in her life. And she did die. She died at like 71. I saw a picture of her tombstone and you can see by the years. She had like a pretty long life for somebody at this time anyway. And I guess the rumors circulating her never died, despite the fact that nothing concrete ever existed. And it's also not the first time the Warrens took some liberties in the stories that they decided to tell. Moving on a little bit about the Warrens as frauds, we know from last week's Amityville horror episode that the Warrens have a complicated reputation. Many consider them to be grifters, including Chrissy Stockton, author of Thought Catalog's article, 10 times Ed and Lorraine Warren were outed as frauds, (laughs) which we love a descriptive article title. One of the biggest issues with the Warrens seems to be lack of support for their claims. For example, Stockton writes, quote, The Warrens themselves claim they once encountered a werewolf demon. They had an entire book about this case in which they specifically say they have exhaustive documentation backing up their claims, but they never share that documentation. If you were a paranormal investigator working on a case with a real-life werewolf demon, wouldn't you snap a photo? Like, they say they have this documentation that they can never show. Also, sometimes the Warrens do share whatever quote-unquote proof they may have, but it doesn't make logical sense. So, for example, the Warrens apparently have a coffin of a modern-day vampire in their museum, which they claim is proof of that vampire's existence, but it doesn't really make sense that they'd be able to nab this vampire's coffin instead of something more concrete and less important to the vampire. Also, another point about Ed is that he claims to be a demonologist, but he has no training in the seminary or anywhere to show for it. I do think the Vatican, like, verified him, though. Oh, really? There was some text on the screen during the movie that I didn't write down word for word, but he is trusted in religious circles as, like, the only non-ordained demonologist. Oh! Like, at 
the time. So mm-hmm. even though he like wasn't ordained and obviously couldn't perform exorcisms except in emergencies, mm-hmm. like he was considered a demonologist consult, I guess. That's very interesting. So a couple weeks ago, you know this, but I watched Haunting in Connecticut because I thought we were covering that movie and then I forgot that we changed our plans. And when I was watching that movie, which has a lot of similarities to this movie, I called my dad because my dad was almost a priest. And I was like, hey, dad, when you were in the seminary, did you have demonology classes? Because I was thinking about, you know, like these priests and exorcisms and things like that. And he said, no, he was like, exorcisms seem like there's something that is apparently very rare. So you don't really learn about them in the seminary. It's not like you have a class that teaches you how to perform an exorcism. Demonology 101. Yeah, you it just like doesn't exist. It's not really something they spend time on. But he said, if there was supposed to be an exorcism, the way that Catholic churches would decide it is based on the faith of the priest. Hmm. So apparently you have to have a reputation for having like a very strong faith because that faith would be needed to extract the demon, etc, etc. I mean, Ed and Lorraine are obviously portrayed as having very, very strong faith. And so maybe that's why the Vatican decided to verify him ultimately. I mean, like, it's just so hard to measure, though, right? Because it's all a matter of opinion. Yes. And that's what I had said during St. Maud, where it's like, I love that the entire movie we're following her not thinking she has enough faith, but it's a subjective metric that you cannot determine. Like, Mm -hmm. there isn't any kind of... I don't know. Like, I'm thinking of the thing that you hit with a hammer at a fair, you know, that that goes up and rings the bell. It's There's not like there's like a faith boom that you can just make sure that it hits the bell at the top. There's no way to measure two people's faith. So Mm -hmm. it's it's all a matter of opinion. These things like still persist. They're still obviously haunting. So like, how good actually are you? And when you were saying how like, if you have proof, why don't you just show it? Maybe because that fucking photo from Amityville is so doctored and bad (laughs) that they're tired of getting called out for their bad receipts. (laughs) Yeah, probably. There's another example that I'm going to end up talking about in a second because it's related to the fact that Ed has some serious allegations that have been laid against him for being a sexual predator and Lorraine for having enabled such behavior. So this information came out after the release of The Conjuring in 2013. Stockton also cites a Hollywood Reporter article by Kim Masters and Ashley Collins titled War Over the Conjuring, the Disturbing Claims Behind a Billion Dollar Franchise, stating that, again, after the first Conjuring film opened, allegations surfaced that Ed had groomed an underage girl. Quote, Ed was in his mid-30s when he allegedly met 15-year-old Judith Penny. Having not yet gained enough fame as a self-trained demonologist to pay the bills in the early 1960s, Ed was working as a city bus driver in Monroe, Connecticut. Penny was a student at Central High School in the nearby town of Bridgeport who rode the bus. The two began an amorous relationship, Penny said, in a legal declaration she gave in November 2014. According to that document, as well as newly obtained recordings of Penny's recollection of events, by 1963, she had moved into the Warrens' home. And for the next 40 years, she said she had a sexual relationship with Ed with Lorraine's knowledge. Even in 1963, a teenage girl did not move in with a married man without attracting notice. That year, Penny was arrested after someone reported her relationship with Ed to local police. 
According to her November 2004 declaration, she spent a night in the North End prison in Bridgeport while police tried to persuade her to sign a statement admitting to the affair. After Penny refused to cooperate, she was ordered by the court to report to a delinquent youth office for the next month. So lots of things going on here. And I didn't really get a chance to look into this arrest. My immediate question is why she spent a night in prison instead of Ed being the one who was apprehended. But I don't know. Have you heard of this before? I had heard that Ed had cheated on his wife. Mm -hmm. Like I had heard that he had done things outside of his marriage. But other than that, like I didn't know about the grooming. Also... Penny even claims that Ed used her in some of his supernatural scheming, stating that when he wanted footage of the famous ghost of Union Cemetery known as the White Lady, he had her dress up in a sheet and pretend to be that ghost. And there is a video. It's not even worth watching. It's so grainy. Part of the way into it, you can see a white blob moving across the screen. It's really hard to discern. But I mean, it could very well be Penny in a sheet or somebody in a sheet at least. And when the Warrens signed their first movie deal for The Conjuring, they made sure their reputations wouldn't be ruined and made a deal that, quote, the films couldn't show her, being Lorraine, or her husband engaging in crimes, including sex with minors, child pornography, prostitution, or sexual assault. Neither the husband or wife could be depicted as participating in an extramarital sexual relationship. Talent attorney Jill Smith says that she has never seen specific language barring such depictions, though individuals selling rights to their stories sometimes restrict portrayals. The point here being that it's interesting that they went so far to make sure that they couldn't be portrayed in a certain way. Finally, another scandal surrounding the franchise is the fact that author Gerald Brittle claims in a pending lawsuit that The Conjuring franchise rips off his 1980 book, The Demonologist. Brittle is suing Warners and New Line for a staggering $900 million. So the scandal surrounding the Warrens isn't the only scandal, I guess. Other lawsuits at play. James Wan is in some trouble. Mm-hmm. And I, wrote it. I don't know if this played out. I think the article I read might have been written in 2020. So lawsuits can sometimes... Oh, 2017. So who knows? It could still be going on. It could have faded away. It could have been settled. But yeah, lots of interesting things surrounding this movie. Obviously, like, we don't delve into true things that often because a lot of horror movies aren't true. I think it's that these are figures that have such conviction and claimed themselves to be experts. It's not like they were peer-reviewed and it's like, these are the best guys in the business. Like, they are going around claiming that we do this and we do that and we have such strong faith. But there are obviously a lot of things that counteract their virtue. So... That's more so why we're bringing it up. It's not that like we think it's salacious that he had an affair or that he groomed somebody. It's more so like it's interesting that these people who go to great lengths to have themselves portrayed as the guys you call Mm -hmm. when things happen do things that seem to offset their professional proclamations. Agreed. And the extreme characterization of both of them as these faithful good-hearted, sacrificing people, when in reality, their lives and their marriage did not seem to be that way at all. And they're both dead, so... They are both dead. I don't think they're gonna come after us, unless they decide to show up beyond the grave. No. I mean, I hope not. (laughs) (laughs) I hope not. I don't want the ghost of Patrick Wilson coming (laughs) down. 
Well, the real Ed Warren was a lot less conventionally attractive. I was about to say, they really did him a favor. (laughs) Seriously. But yeah, so I did make it through watching this movie without crying. Yeah, you did so much better than I expected you to. But I mean, we both kind of said like we were just a little bored. And I don't know what it is. Like, I don't know that we've just really been watching a lot of movies that take different risks and that follow less formulaic plot points to where now everything just seemed like very predictable. And like, I don't know. This is also the fifth haunted house movie (laughs) that you've watched this month. Yeah. So I think after watching those films, you do get used to some of the conventions and you are anticipating certain things. And I did have a few things I remembered from the first time I saw it, which helped. I'm wondering if I watched this first, if I would have been more scared. Right. Which I think it's very possible. But yeah, it was good revisiting and proving to myself that I could get through it and demystifying the fear that I had carried surrounding this movie for the last six years. So (laughs) you triumphed over it. Yeah. So that's what we have for The Conjuring. Next week, we're giving you a little Halloween special. Wink, wink. Nudge, nudge. If you have any suggestions for us regarding movies for us to cover, please feel free to email us or reach out to us. Our email is thehorrorspodcast at gmail.com. And you can find us on Instagram also at thehorrorspodcast. And until next time, we're the horrors. Bye. Bye. Bye.